We've arrived then at our penultimate uh, sermon in the Just Jesus series that we started way back uh, at Easter time. And we'll keep us going for today and uh, next Sunday. And we're not going to peter out with a kind of whimper. I hope we're going to go out with a bit of a bang because that's certainly the way Jesus did it and the way he intends it to be. We're going to look at the two most significant events apart from the cross in the life of Jesus. One that has happened and today one that will still happen one day. So this morning we're going to think about the greatest promise that Jesus made that's yet to be fulfilled, the fact that he will come again. And then next Sunday we're going to go back chronologically to look at that single event upon which everything hinges. If Jesus rose from the dead, then it's probably all true, wouldn't you say? Not many men have risen from the dead. If he didn't, we could go home now. So next week is crucial in our understanding. And that's why with Otty coming and so on, it seemed right to move it uh, to the end of this series. When we look at, did Jesus really come back from the dead? Some people will say it doesn't matter. It absolutely matters. Because Jesus said, you'll know all that I'm saying is true because I will die and three days later I will rise again. If he got that wrong, then there's probably quite a lot of things he might have got wrong. But if he got that right, then maybe we dare trust him for everything else. What do you say? So this week Jesus is back. Well, he might come back this week, I'm not sure. Uh, This week we're thinking about Jesus coming back, and then next week, finally, the resurrection. Do join us next uh, Sunday. Let's uh, uh, get into it this morning. Let's be absolutely clear then. Jesus is coming back. That's the promise, the greatest promise in the Bible, yet to be fulfilled. If I go... I will come back. We looked at the ascension last Sunday and as it took place, the disciples are left aghast at what has happened, seeing Jesus go up into heaven and then these men come and they say to him, why are you hanging around, men of Galilee? Why do you stand here? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, what will he do? He will come back in the same way that you have seen him go. The idea of Jesus coming again is sometimes talked about as if it just involves a few rather obscure verses in the New Testament. It absolutely is not the case. And you don't need to read your Bible for more than a few minutes to bump into the idea that the Jesus who once came as a baby will come back again. In fact, there's around, uh, uh, let's say, 300 plus, at least 300 references to Jesus coming again in the New Testament. 200 of those references are outside the final book, the book of Revelation, which is all about Jesus coming again. And if you've been following the the reading plan, you'll have just got to the end of Revelation and uh, maybe you're still wondering, what on earth was that all about? And I'm sorry we haven't uh, had time perhaps to unpack it a little more on these Sunday mornings. The book of Revelation is essentially this. We live caught in an in-between time, a raging war between good and 
and evil. When Jesus died on the cross, He made it absolutely certain that good will win. And when He comes back, He will prove the point. And that's what the book of Revelation in all its figurative language and all its pictures and its uh, 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 rich metaphor is all about. And so the Bible is moving all the time as is history to the day when Jesus comes again. What will it be like? It will be glorious. It will be completely contrasted to His first coming when it was quiet in obscurity as a baby. This will be different. The Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. This time, every eye will see Him. Look, He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. Now there's a thought. Every eye will see Him. It will be the decisive close to history. Jesus coming again will bring history on this earth as we know it to a final end. History began with an act of God in creation. History will close with an act of God coming again. All history is His story. And it began with Him and it will end with Him. It will be sudden. So you must... Jesus says, always be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Do not listen to all of those who spend their lives, sometimes their Christian lives, trying to work it all out when He's coming. If they think they know, by definition the Bible says they've got it wrong. Because no one will know. It will be sudden and you will not know the hour because we don't know when. If the Jehovah Witnesses come to your door and they want to sell you a Watchtower magazine, point out to them that at least three times through the last century, the Watchtower magazine predicted a date when the world would come to an end. Manifestly, they got it wrong. Ask them why you would want to read a magazine that teaches the truth, or so it says, when they so obviously got the truth wrong. It's a fair question. We're in search of the truth. We don't know when. So what are we to make of it all that Jesus is coming again? Well, there are three main truths, I think, that run through the New Testament that I want to leave with you this morning. And they come, well, I'll put them this morning in the form of a a question. Three questions. Question number one. Are we longing today? Are we longing for His coming? There is in store for me, hey, and you, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award to me on that day, and also to all who have longed for His appearing. On a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you long today for His appearing? I love my life. I love the people that God has given me to share this life with. And on days like yesterday, when you get out and you glimpse the best of God's world, and we live in a very uh, uh, safe and sheltered part of the world, we're immensely blessed to live in a way that most people on this planet simply do not. We are tempted to cling to what we have. The question here is, how much do you long for His coming? There are times when I really long for His coming. 
Remember a time when I stood in this exact spot and I asked the congregation to stand as a mother and father walked in from that door carrying a box of the ashes of their 17-year-old son. We gathered to say a final farewell. On days like that, I long for his coming. When I hold the hand, and maybe you have, of someone who's dying, when you embrace relatives who are left behind, when you listen to the broken heart of someone tell the story of how those who should have loved them and should have protected them, abused them and violated them, I long for his coming. Told you before in Mozambique last year when we built this uh, house for a grandmother and in the plot next door, most of the nine of her children who had already died were buried. I long for his coming. Do you know the day is coming that will be the day of no more. The day of no more. No more hard feelings. No more hurt feelings. No more misunderstandings. No more critical spirits. No more divorce and breakup and separation. No more sickness or weakness. Dangers or hardships. Fires or famines or floods. No more wars. Refugees. No more ethnic cleansing. Racial, political, religious prejudice. No more divides. No class system. Economic sanctions. Human slavery. There'll be no more scars except the ones in his hands and in his side that the Bible says will remain in heaven. No more guilt, abuse, shame, disappointment, regrets, hurts. There'll be no more suffering that's not physical or emotional, not relational, not social, nor spiritual. No more suffering. There'll be no pain, no hospitals or deaths or funerals or Zimmer frames or commodes or wheelchairs or bed hoists. There'll be no more suicide bombers, fiery infernos, broken homes and broken hearts, broken lives and broken dreams. No more mental illness, no more physical handicaps, no more muscular dystrophy, multiple sclerosis, no more blindness or deafness or disease or sickness. There'll be no more heart disease or Parkinson's or diabetes, arthritis, cataracts, paralysis, no more cancer or strokes or AIDS, no more guns in schools, bombs in cars, terrorists on streets, missiles from afar. There'll be a day of no more. Hallelujah. If you were Pentecostals, you'd be standing and waving and cheering by now but you're Baptist, so you're sitting quite still. (laughs) He, who is the He that will wipe away every tear? He will. Isn't that just fantastic? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more death or mourning or crying or pain. And so we long for His coming. Because it brings the day of no mores. And we long for His coming because it brings the day that will be home. What's home to you? Home is where I'm loved and accepted. Home is where my needs are met. Where I can lay my burdens down. Where I can run to when I'm discouraged, under pressure, disappointed or hurt. Home is where I can be refreshed in my body and in my spirit. Where I can wear what I like and slouch in the chair. Where I don't have to worry about how I look and perhaps all of the time what I say. Home is where the food is what I like. Where the people and relationships that matter most can be found. Home is the reference point from which every other place has meaning. If you've ever been away from home, it's 
a joy to be back. The first night back in your own bed, if you've been abroad, that first familiar meal. If you spent three hours getting up the A12, that long bath. When Jesus comes, we'll all be home. Home. For now we live with the struggle. Hebrews talks about it. It says all these people, they're still living by faith. And they lived by faith even until they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted, Hebrews 11, they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things so that they're looking for a country of their own. One day we'll be home. So we're longing for His coming because it will be the day of no mores. We're longing for His coming because it will be the day we'll be home. We're longing for His coming because we'll see Jesus face to face. Ever wondered what that will be like? To see Him face to face. Can you imagine meeting Jesus, the person you have always meant to be with? Can you imagine seeing him face to face, the one you had been created for from the moment you were conceived? And you're longing because the day will come when we'll be like him. Hey, no more careless words. You know those words when you open your mouth and you're grabbing them back? No more. No more stupid actions that hurt people and abuse yourself. No more ugly thoughts that make you feel sick inside. No more raging anger that you wish you could keep under control. No more hurtful attitudes, just like him. So are you longing? Are you longing for his coming? Paul writes in Titus, Titus chapter 2, Summing up this sense of longing, he says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us To redeem us. You longing? So Christ was sacrificed. We looked at his death a few weeks ago. Once to take away the sins of the people. And he will appear a second time. Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And as the Bible comes to a close, it says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Come, come, Lord Jesus. We're going to spend just a few moments as we listen to some music. I want to ask you, can you imagine what it will be like? Not detracting anything about the longing, there is another theme. And in the form of a question, it asks this question, are we lamenting His coming? The Bible carries with it at the same time a longing and a lament. A lament because His coming brings His judgment. 
We worship the Christ who will judge the living and the dead. Therefore, Paul encourages us not to worry about judgments here and now. Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of His holy ones to judge everyone. And if it seems unreasonable to you that God should in some way wrap up history without passing any judgment on it, then just think with me for a moment. God is holy and pure and righteous in all His ways. Jesus who will come is the Righteous One. Capital R, capital O. And He comes bringing history to an end. And that requires the Righteous One to bring everything under His righteous judgment. If you look at the mess of the world that we're in, the abuse, the tragedy, the brokenness, Who's responsible for all of that? Oh, we'd love to blame God for all that's wrong. In fact, when something goes wrong in your life, and instinctively in mine too, we we so want to blame Him, we so think it's His fault. But who's responsible, really? It's me. And it's you. And how could a holy God bring history to a close without bringing anyone or anything to account? Without putting the record straight? Without turning the wrongs into right? How could it all be left undone, unsaid, unspoken? Of course it can't. And so a man is destined, the Bible says, to die once. And after that to face judgment. And we're right to be a little anxious, a a little nervous when we speak like this, because as Hebrews goes on to explain, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so Jesus talked more than any other individual in the Bible, very factually, very honestly, and very straight about the judgment that was coming. The most loving person that's ever lived talked the most often about judgment and the hell that would follow. They will go away, he said, to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The frequency with which Jesus, the most loving, caring person, spoke of these things is sobering to say the very least. And let's get away for a moment about all the the, the age-old characterizations of, of God somehow gleefully tormenting people in a place called hell. Let's get away from the idea that there's some sadistic headmaster in heaven who takes delight, like maybe your headmaster did, of conjuring up ever more inventive ways to punish people for his own pleasure. If you're ever tempted to think like that, then I ask you to make the journey ever so quickly to a place called Golgotha, outside the city of Jerusalem. It was called the place of death, the place of the skull, because it looked skull-like in its shape. It was the place they crucified people. And remember there in that place, the Christ of which we have celebrated took our sin, yours and mine, upon Himself. 
And remember what happened as the sin of the world was laid upon him. The Bible says that Father in heaven, for the first and only time, turned his face away from his son. And he cried, the son that is, my God, my God, why? And as the sin of the world, the darkness of it all, was wrapped round the Lord Jesus as He hung on the cross, it went dark. It was the least it could do to go dark. Because in those moments, Jesus was experiencing the awfulness of what sin does, which is to separate us, to obliterate us from God's presence. And how is that place? Not because God has worked hard at making it that most awful place. Hell is that place because without Him, that's simply the way things are. A place that's dark because God is light. And sin separates us from God. You're wrong and mine. And if it's undealt with, it will separate us from God forever. Nowhere does Jesus exhibit a cruel, unfeeling, or gloating attitude towards hell. But over and over and over, he speaks of it as a heart full of sorrow and with great urgency. You see, we need to remember that hell was never God's plan. And he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Billy Graham once put it like this. He said, Hell was not prepared for man. God never meant that man would ever go to hell. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. But man rebelled against God and followed the devil. And we must remember that God wants everyone to be saved. We can shout at God about how wrong it is. But let's never forget, He longs that no one, that no one, that no one should perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And let's go there one more time, just in case you missed it. You see, if you're thinking, how can God do that? I want to ask you this question. How could God do this? How could he take such incredible extreme action to save me? Get up that hill as fast as you can. And look into the blood-stained man on the cross. See the tortured face. And feel the darkness that closes in. And hear the father's heart cry as he loses his son. And know that God stopped at nothing to save you from that place that is without him. God who had no sin, became sin for us, for me. So that in Him I might become the righteousness of God. And so we wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us. Hallelujah. From the coming wrath. So there is a lament concerning His coming. And I want to ask you, picking up some of the things that Julie talked about earlier on, do do you hear the heartbeat of God? Do you hear the lament in God's heart for those who are not ready for His coming? We're called to join heaven in that lament that one day history will close and the world will be judged and there will be many who were not ready. 
And so the obvious question as we come to a close this morning is, are you ready? Are you ready? I'll put that in the form of a question. Are we living for His coming? Are we living, longing, lamenting, are we living for His coming? I just want to share with you three stories. The three stories that Jesus told, they were all about His second coming. And each of them asked a different question. Probably lots of things we can learn from them, but fundamentally each story asks one question. And these stories that Jesus told point to the decision. Are we living for His coming? I just want to share them with you as we come to a close. And the first one is the parable of the great banquet. I'd ask you just to open the Bible in front of you, just so you can know that it's there. And, uh, and I won't read all the words that are there, but I want you to know that it's there. And, and if you think what I'm saying is wrong, well, check it out with what it says in the Bible, because that's what matters most. Page 1048, the parable of the great banquet. Story's not complicated. Basically, it goes like this. A certain man was preparing a great banquet, and he invited many guests. And when the invitations went out to all the people who had been invited to the great banquet, people said, I'm not coming. I'm not coming. You can stuff your banquet. I'm busy. I'm busy with my field. I'm busy with my five yoke of oxen. How exciting can it get? And I've just got married. So either way, I'm not coming. And so the servants went back to the master and he said, Master, all the invitations have gone out. Nobody's coming. Nobody's coming. And the question is this. Have you responded to the invitation? Have you responded to the invitation to the greatest banquet of all time? You know when you get a posh invitation, you put it on the mantelpiece, don't you? And you're kind of so thrilled that you've been invited and you know that that invitation sitting on the mantelpiece, pride of place in the centre of your home, together with the fact that you have RSVP'd, guarantees your place at the party, the banquet, whatever it might be. You can have on the mantelpiece at the centre of your life an invitation from the God of heaven that sits there proud as punch that says you're invited to the banquet. And you can know deep in your heart that with that invitation there, pride of place, not at the centre of your home, but at the centre of your life, and the fact that you have RSVP'd, that your place is absolutely secure. With different words, the invitation comes in the Bible over and over. Here's one. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And so he gives the invitation. He who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. There's the invitation. And then the RSVP. Do you? Do you believe this? Have you responded with belief and trust in Jesus securing your place at the banquet? Verses that the children sang earlier, turn to them with me, would you? Page 1137. 1137. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. Exactly the same. You get the invitation and then the RSVP. That if you confess with your mouth 
Jesus is Lord, page 1137, Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, say it with me, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the Scripture says, anyone who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him. For, say it together, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm going to ask you, have you accepted the invitation to let Jesus sort the sin in your life out? We have two choices. We can sort it out now with His forgiveness or He will sort it out later with His judgment. And maybe some of you this morning found that song really difficult because you couldn't imagine what it would be like to see Him face to face. Because you think, Christ, if I see Him face to face, He will see me as I am and He knows exactly who I am. And I don't like who I am. He will never like who I am. He knows the wrong that's deep inside me. He knows the things I've tried to hide even from those closest to me. And the thought of seeing Jesus is not a a delightful one in the way we were celebrating it, but a terrifying one. That's because you haven't got your sin sorted out now. It's not that there aren't things in my life that I would be terrified about God knowing. It's that there are those things. And I know Jesus has sorted them already. And I can't tell you how good that is to know it's sorted already. To know His forgiveness now rather than His condemnation then. Have you accepted the invitation? Are you living for His coming? And are you living for His coming by being ready? Second parable. The parable of the ten virgins. Turn to it just to make sure it's there. I'm not making it up. Page 994, Matthew 25. And it's a story of ten virgins or bridesmaids that were going to the wedding. Five of them took spare oil with them so that their lamps wouldn't go out. Another five didn't take spare oil. The bridegroom was late at the wedding. So the five that didn't have spare oil, their lamps ran out before the bridegroom came and they go, what are we going to do? Tesco's for us. And off they went down to Tesco's. It was open 24 hours a day. And they went there in the dead of night to get more oil. While they were at Tesco's, the bridegroom came. When they got back, it was all over. Question is this. Are you living ready? Are you living ready? You see, you might have started really well. But I wonder whether today the oil's run out in your life, so to speak. Maybe you've drifted away, got distracted, caught up in other things. To put the question another way, are there things in your life today that you'd really want to get sorted if you knew he was coming tonight? The forgiveness that needs to be received. The forgiveness that needs to be offered. The repentance that needs to be made. The restitution that needs to be sought. The relationship that needs to be restored. The situation that you have power to resolve but are still sitting on your hands. Is there something that you would sort out today if you knew He was coming tonight? Jesus tells a story about ten bridesmaids. Only five were ready. Because they sorted out in the daylight. 
before they got to the night time. Jesus said it like this, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And when he comes, what will he find you and me doing? What will we be about? And finally, completing the circle, are you uh, living for his coming by living ready, by responding to the invitation, and then thirdly, by giving your all for the kingdom of God. You know this one, it's the parable of the talents, you've already got it open in front of you. It's the very next parable. See, at the end of the Gospels, Jesus is punching these things home over and over. Loads of stories about the fact he's coming again. Don't keep putting it off, he's saying. Get this sorted out. Why? Because he believed in heaven and he believed in hell. He believed in the possibility of forgiveness and he knew the reality of judgment later. And so he keeps telling these stories and he says it's, it's, it's like these guys. It's like these guys that were given different talents when the master went away on a long journey. He went away on a long journey. It was going to be a long time. Sound familiar? Our master's gone away on a long journey. It seems like it's been a long time. And he says, what matters is not how long the master has been away, but what have you been doing with what he's left you in the meantime? The guy with five talents, he went away and he sorted it out and he ended up with ten. The master comes back. Thumbs up for the guy who got five into ten. Thumbs up for the guy that got two into four. Then there was the guy that was afraid. I could almost weep when I read about the guy who was afraid because he was just paralysed by fear some of us know what that's like we've got all these good things but we don't believe in ourselves we're scared to, to even start to try and use them and, and it, oh I'll just put it in the ground, it's so much easier and he dug a hole at least he remembered where it was you know, a fact play master came back after a long time, it's on this beach somewhere He knew where it was and he went and got it. And maybe you know where the thing is that God's entrusted you. You know where it is, but it's still buried in the ground. And living for his coming means giving your all for the kingdom. To have something, a gift, a talent, a gift, an opportunity, and not to use it, to invest it, to develop it, is what attracted from Jesus the greatest criticism. And you'll know, because actually something will be beating hard in you right now. If there's something that you've buried in the ground, maybe because you were afraid. I want to say God understands what it's like to be afraid, for you to be afraid. And God urges you through this story not to put it in the ground and leave it there. Maybe you've got to get your shovel out this summer. And get what God has given you back and reclaim it and say, I am scared about this but I'm not going to keep it in the ground anymore hey I'm done turn with me would you to page 1208 and Jesus uh, uh, the writer sorry to Hebrews brings all all of these themes together the, the longing the lamenting the living for his coming page 1208 Hebrews 10 Uh, verse 19, and we're going to read a few verses uh, together that just kind of brings these themes together. I want to ask you this morning, are you longing with all your heart? Do you know the lament of God? And are you living for the light of His coming? Hebrews 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, hey, confidence to enter the heart of heaven, the most holy place, because we've been good, not on your, not on your life, but by the blood of 
Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is His body. Talking about the great curtain that separated the holy place that was ripped in two when Jesus died. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us do what? Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And as the Bible ends, so we might cry, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray together, shall we?